I am definitely appreciating my roots a little bit more and not just my cultural roots, but like the roots of like simple home cooking and knowing how to cook a chicken drumstick and getting crispy skin on it. Like these are the things that actually did impress the judges. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Eliza Barbanel. Grabbing ingredients off a moving platform to cook a dish for Gordon Ramsay to judge truly sounds like a stress dream I've had before. But for Mehreen Karim, it's a good time. Rini is a recipe developer and home cook who is competing on the current season of Next Level Chef, a cooking show designed to conjure up culinary brilliance from serious constraints. She's also a close friend, so I'm thrilled to have her on the podcast to ask her questions like, why did you want to do this? And what's it really like to cook for the most feared judge in food? It's always so much fun catching up with Rini, and I hope you'll enjoy. Marine Kareem, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. Thank you for, for coming to talk to me for the world to listen to. It's super fun. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad the world is listening. <laughs> I mean, maybe the, the world as in the people that listen to the Taste Podcast, which is some world. It's bigger than my world, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, to start, I'm, I'm wondering if you can give me like a very, very quick rundown of the concept behind Next Level Chef for listeners that haven't watched it yet and maybe like specifically how the physical set of the TV show plays into it because it's totally crazy to watch. Ah, uh, yes. Where to begin? So it's called Next Level Chef with good reason. It plays with the concept of levels in two ways. It casted, the show Next Level Chef casted chefs of all different culinary expertise levels. So there are chefs that make their living on social media, which they aptly call social media chefs. There are home cooks or home chefs who haven't worked professionally in a restaurant necessarily, but cook at home or have maybe like a small home run business. And then there's pro chefs who have worked in restaurants or currently work in a restaurant. And all three of these levels of chefs come together to compete in a three-story kitchen, and you are assigned to a different floor of the kitchen. Uh, the top level is like a state-of-the-art fancy pants kitchen with uh, those machines that you put stuff in and it makes foam out of it. And you can make like little jelly balls out of nori if you want. A Paco jet. Is that what it's called? That's what I learned from watching the menu. So someone uh, else can correct me. but <laughs> that, that must be it. I... I didn't learn while I was there what it's called um, because I really liked the middle kitchen, which resembles what maybe like the Bon Appetit test kitchen was like or any standard restaurant kitchen um, or if you have a really equipped home kitchen. That's what I would say is akin to the middle kitchen at Next Level Chef. And then there's the basement kitchen, the bottom level where everything is intentionally broken and distorted and dirty and too big or too small and you have to somehow cook with it. Crazy. And talk about the the dais that's like descending through all three of these. Because when I was watching the show and I saw this, that was the moment when I was like, this is insane. <laughs> I would never do this. Uh, yes, that was also the moment when I said I would never do this and then proceeded to do it. Uh, um, I Yeah, the level, the platform that comes down through each level of the kitchen holds the main ingredients that contestants cook with. So the top level kitchen gets first choice because the platform comes down top to bottom. But 
Also, at the end of the 45-minute cooking challenge, when you're done with your dish, you have to run to place it back onto the platform and it will ascend back up into the heavens where your dish will be tasted. Okay, so clearly this is like a high-stress cooking show. I just have to know, like, why did you decide to do this? I, I think this is like my true nightmare. Yes, um, I've learned this really interesting thing about me is that I don't process the potential anxiety something will cause me until after I decide to do it. So growing up, I used to like chop my hair off or I don't know, just I once like crashed a wedding when I was 17 because a girl accidentally invited me. And later she <laughs> said, why did you come to my wedding when I don't know you? And I said, I don't know. Like I just do things that I think will be fun in the moment. And then I close my eyes. And when I get there, I am just as terrified as you probably. Um, but I think last year when I was casted onto the show, I realized that it could either be a lot of fun or a lot of learning. And it was actually both. So I'm glad my chaotic brain forced me to go, even though I was incredibly anxious and it felt like a nightmare the first day. <laughs> That's really a superpower that you have. I'm hoping it's going to rub off on me sitting across from you. Uh, yes, we love ignorance. That is a great superpower. <laughs> ignorance is a superpower. No, but I feel like they told you what it was going to be like. Did you do anything to try to prepare? Is there any way you can prepare for that? You know, it's funny. When I was on the show, a lot of the contestants were saying, like, no one can prepare for this. Like, I've worked in this kitchen and this kitchen and that kitchen, and and nothing can prepare me for what this 45-minute challenge will be like. And I remember thinking, like, oh, man, even though I practiced at home, I actually did 45-minute cooking challenges at home the month leading up to filming. Um I remember telling myself, like, oh, if the pro chefs are scared and think that they're not prepared, then I'm probably not going to be prepared. But let me tell you, timing yourself cooking actually does help. If anyone out there is trying to go on to a cooking show, recreate challenges at home because it definitely served me well. I, like, want to know more about these challenges that you made for yourself. Did you, <laughs> like, have someone else pick ingredients for you? Or were you just, like, looking at what you had on hand and saying, I have 45 minutes to cook something spectacular? Uh, yes, I actually would look up proteins that I hadn't cooked with yet, like game or random seafoods or not a protein, because sometimes that would happen if you like forget to grab a protein off the platform and then Gordon Ramsay gets mad and you have to somehow impress him with the produce, which isn't hard to do, by the way. Um, <laughs> so my husband, Race, would actually go across the street to our grocery store, choose six random ingredients and reveal them to me and start the timer at the same time. And I would have to showcase them in a dish. And I would time myself. Um, and it's funny, at home, obviously, because I know my way around that kitchen and I know my own personal hacks, I would complete dishes within 30 minutes usually. So I think it just comforted me in terms of how my brain works with food in a short amount of time. Wow. Shout out to Race, honestly, setting the standard for husbands <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> God, he was he was waiting. To, since he learned that I was auditioning for the show, he had been waiting months to start the cooking challenges. <laughs> That's so fun. And did any of them pay off? Did he pick anything that you ended up using on the actual show? Yes, actually, he did grab a duck breast. Um, and I think by the time this podcast comes out, we will uh, see that episode on air already. But I did not know how to cook a duck breast before Race brought it home for me. And thankfully, it's a relatively cook-quicking protein with like a searing situation um, with most reddish meat. So I learned how to cook that. And then it actually ended up being my winning dish on the show. Oh, my God. 
I haven't seen this yet. I, lo- I, I love to hear that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Were you surprised? Yeah, I was shocked. It, it was a game day. Like the cooking challenge is all game protein. So like mm-hmm. pigeons and rabbits and things like that. Um, and I'm so glad I picked duck because that was the only thing I recognized on that platform. Yeah, but now you could just walk out into the street and pluck out a New York City pigeon and make us dinner, right? You know, it's really funny you say that because when we were filming that day, Richard Blaze, um, there's a segment where they kind of just like have fun conversations with all the contestants. And one thing he said to me was, Mary, they don't have game up in Brooklyn, do they? And then he goes, oh, wait, no, they have pigeons. And I was so sad when he said that, that I immediately blurted out, pigeons are my friends. (laughs) Because I really do love pigeons. So the fact that he mentioned pigeons got me like really up in arms. And um, I hope that makes it onto the episode. Yeah, is it um, is it interesting to see like what sections? Because I, I know that you must be shooting for a while and doing all these interviews. Like, is it surprising to see what actually makes it into the final cut of the show? Oh yeah, it's very surprising. I think part of my brain just filed away that whole experience um, and separated the filming from the actual show. And when I saw the show premiere, I was like oh, that's why we did all of that for all those weeks. I just, I forgot that the whole point of this process was to produce a real-life TV show that we have to watch. In my head, I, like, closed that chapter when filming was over. So I think once I saw myself on TV, at first I was like, who is that actress and why is she saying these things and saying I said them? But then I was like, oh, yeah, I do remember saying that and I do remember thinking that. And I feel a little exposed, actually, when I see things I said. Yeah, are you one of those people that, like, doesn't like the sound of their own voice? Actually, that is one thing I've gotten over. And now I've had to get over just seeing all different angles of my face and expressions because I did not know I emote the way I do as I have seen myself on TV now. Yeah, I would say you're a very like uh, expressive person. I feel like you I mean, you have like beautiful big eyes and you just kind of are reacting a lot. So I I feel like I saw even on Instagram, somebody made like a, a fan cam kind of like reaction of your facial expressions. Were you expecting anything like that? No, I I really thought I was so much cooler than I portray on TV. <laughs> you know, it's fine because because I enjoy that part of my personality. I think it's just weird to see it through this like visual 2D medium on my TV where I'm like, oh, that's what I do when I'm excited or when I'm nervous or any of these emotions. Um, it has been fun. It's allowed me to accept my personality in a way where... Only this level of self-awareness, like it really took someone filming me for this amount of time for me to understand how I, uh, how people perceive me potentially. Well, at least in like one very specific high pressure situation. Exactly. Only in a dirty apron and a wife chef, chef's coat is what I'm aware how people see me now. Yeah. <laughs> well, I feel like we have to talk about like the whole curry sauce moment that happened on camera because I feel like that's had a little that is a really great example of you just reacting to something and that has been having some traction online like what was uh can you explain that to someone that hasn't seen that and like why were you reacting in that way oh gosh yeah so I made a ocean trout curry that came with a fried flatbread called a puri in order to soak up the the curry that comes with it you know curry itself as you know as I like has all types of nuance behind it and like do people call it a gravy do we want to keep calling it a curry because curry like refers to the actual curry powder spice and it's not truly what all Indian dishes or South Asian dishes consist of so on the show I let my mentor Richard Blaze know that I'm making a curry just for the sake of 
I don't know, just 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 so he's aware of like the general name of the dish, because that's what I call it at home. So I'm not afraid of calling it that here. I was shocked when they said there was too much sauce at judging because I was like, Richard, I told you it was a curry. Tell them. (laughs) Um, And thankfully, they want you to be as honest as possible when you go into those little confessional interviews after filming. Um, So they asked me what I thought when they mentioned that there was too much sauce. And Wait, was it that there was too much sauce? I thought it was the opposite, that he referred to it as a curry sauce. And then you said, no, it's a curry. There's enough of it to be a curry and not just like a finishing sauce. Right. Yes, that is the case. So I what I took it as is that they thought there was too much of it. They thought the ocean trout filet was like swimming in curry sauce. Well, I don't remember. They, I think they said it was swimming in sauce or swimming in curry sauce uh-huh. to say that there's too much of it, like too much of the sauce. Hmm. And it should have been a finishing sauce. You know, my impression from watching it, which maybe this got cut or maybe like I just didn't understand it, was that you were upset that they were saying it was a sauce instead of just like an actual curry itself, um, which I thought was funny because I was like, like there's <laughs> definitely enough of it to be a curry. And I was like, there is like this is like it's a separate dish. And it's funny to think about the way that like you make something and then obviously like, right. the judges are presenting it on TV and like the name isn't really sticking or like something about it isn't translating. You know, I think that's a fair reaction, actually, because that is one of the sacrifices of editing an episode so early on, too. They barely spend any time on each dish because there's 18 of them. This is the first episode. I'm really glad you did take it that way, though, because <laughs> uh, me having those, those judgments, by the way, take like 40 minutes total. And we see like a three minute clip in the final episode of all 18 dishes getting judged. Each dish takes 40 minutes? Oh, sorry. No. Oh, every, wow. Every single day. Like, there that much to say? <laughs> each, I think each dish takes like a full seven minutes mm-hmm. and then they get maybe 30 seconds of screen time. Um, so for a lot of my seven minutes of judgment, they were speaking about the fact that there was too much of whatever. So the curry, the gravy, the sauce, oh. there was too much in their eyes. And that's why in my side interview, I was like, it's a curry. There has to be enough curry for it to be considered a curry which is me defending the amount of sauce i kept in that dish i even chose a deep dish to make sure it was yeah soupy it it was swimming because it's it's a fish and it's swimming in the curry ocean right exactly and you know what i think my mentor richard blaze loves and enjoys that and i think after watching the episode he like plays on to the joke yeah like he's i think he's even commented on one of my dishes saying i'd love to be swimming in that curry That's funny. Did you have like a strategy when you were thinking about like what kinds of dishes the judges would like? Or was it just like what you wanted to cook in that moment? Like how much were you kind of planning it out? Because it seems like it happens very fast. It really does happen as fast as it looks. Um, In the moment, I'm thinking about my strengths, honestly. I'm thinking about what I've done before, flavors I've played with before, um, because that's just what's going to allow me to perform quickest. And that's what I need. I need to build in enough time for myself to self-edit rather than experiment in the moment. Because experimentation happens naturally. Like things are just naturally going to go wrong. So even if you grab an exact set of ingredients from a recipe I've written and uh, cooked a hundred times before, something is still going to go awry and I'm going to have to think on my feet. Um, So I'm going with comfort zone more than anything. And then while I'm self-editing, I learn new ways to take it to the next level, quote unquote. (laughs) 
This is like our Will Smith movie moment when you say the title in the thing and they wink at the camera. Oh, yeah, exactly. Imagine me winking. Uh huh. I mean, I think it's really smart that you were thinking about things you knew you could execute because I think you can fall into this trap of like what is going to impress Gordon Ramsay. And like mm. really at the end of the day, it's probably whatever you can deliver in the best way that you can. Exactly. And it took me a few days and challenges to realize that what I know about food might actually be impressive to these chefs and judges. And it took me a while to accept that about the feedback they were giving me. Mm. Do you think part of that came from the fact that you were categorized as a home cook on the show? Because I found that to be surprising because you were left your staff job at Bon Appetit to do that. So like I think saying home cook is like even if you don't have formal training, like that's kind of underselling your experience, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. I think that title or label categorization definitely got to me. And like I was saying about the first day of filming when the pro chefs were like, nothing can prepare you for a challenge like cooking for Gordon Ramsay. It got to me. I told myself, like, yeah, nothing could prepare me. I'm not prepared. And then it took a few challenges and platform grabs and things like that to realize, like, oh, I kind of do perform well under stress. And what I learned from my days of writing, whether at Bon Appetit or freelance writing or just writing for my own blog, it's valuable stuff. Yeah. Do you feel like there's anything that maybe was an advantage to having, like, maybe not that restaurant background that served you well in the challenges? Oh, 1,000%. You can definitely tell that there are restaurant rules that a lot of the pro chefs were kind of abiding by. And there were some social media and home chefs that broke a lot of rules because that's what we do for fun. And we post about it and write about it. And that's what we were doing on the show. And a lot of that was winning over some of the pro chef traditional restaurant quality dishes. What are like the restaurant rules that people were trying not to break? I just think there's there's rules like the amount of food that goes onto a plate or just like there has to be a puree with every little bit of protein and things like that. Like there's a format that seems to occupy a lot of the pro cooks minds in my opinion <laughs> and there was a lot of um us us as in the social media and home chefs attempting to assimilate to that format in order to appear to be on the same playing field and also like are the are the dishes judged blind or they they know whose is whose when they're trying it i don't think they're supposed to know whose is whose but Sometimes it's just so apparent based on the ingredients and choices made and what they know about us. So it's not like a hard and fast rule that they need to not know at all. It's kind of implicated that they may or may not know. And sometimes it's more obvious than others when they know who cooked it. Yeah. Do you feel like you had any dishes that were really obviously like, oh, this is Rini's dish? Yeah, it's like who cooked the curry amongst <laughs> all 18 chefs. There's only one South Asian. Um, and I think that came. Well, I think at some point it started blurring together. And that's what I mean, where like a lot of the chefs were assimilating to each other. Once people realized that like, oh, this person made a flatbread, I can make a bread or like, oh, this person made their own noodles from scratch. I'll make pasta from scratch. Like everyone starts stepping up in the way that they've seen other contestants step up. Leveling, leveling. Level, le next level chef is the name of the game. <laughs> so coming out of that, now you're back in Brooklyn. You're doing recipe development as a freelancer because you left your job at Bon Appetit. Like, how did you feel about making that decision? And how does that like feel now as opposed to when you were going to London to film? Oh, my gosh. How does it feel now? It feels like 
I can't believe I didn't make that decision sooner. I, I am surprised looking backwards that it took a whole Gordon Ramsay TV show to to pull me out of a position that I very much appreciated and learned so much from. But I knew at the time was occupying my mind from being creative in the way I once was with food and recipe development. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think like as, you know, to speak myself, I also was on staff. I also was on staff at Bon Appetit, actually, although we didn't overlap when I was there. Um, and I think it's really hard to decide to leave a cosign from a brand that you really respect and admire and like all of the uh, security that can come with being on staff somewhere. So to me, I don't think it is surprising that like you needed a a kind of like deus ex machina, Gordon Ramsay Mm -hmm. moment to feel like you could make the jump. Yeah, that's true. Honestly, thanks for saying that because sometimes I am hard on myself. I'm like, oh, like, why didn't I know what I know now? But it's because it's what I know now. I did have to spend that amount of time filming and cooking for these chefs in a high-pressure environment to say, oh, yes, you do have another skill set <laughs> that you could be um, enhancing just by cooking on your own. So now do you think your recipe development has been impacted by this experience at all? Are you doing duck breast every day? <laughs> yeah, for breakfast, actually. Uh, <laughs> no, yeah, so I think I am definitely appreciating my roots a little bit more and not just my cultural roots but like the roots of like simple home cooking and the amount of knowledge that comes out of just knowing how to cook a chicken drumstick and getting crispy skin on it like these are the things that actually did impress the judges while cooking on the show it's just small technical details that I learned from working at Bon Appetit or consuming food magazine recipes is the level of detail that recipe developers that I look up to include in the recipes and their educational resources and cookbooks. So it's excited me to just go back to learning and reading cookbooks and recipes online. Yeah, I think that's really nice as a reminder that, um, you know, simple when done well is is impressive. And I think that like maybe my first instinct would be to go for like the passion fruit or like some kind of like fancy glitzy ingredient. Although, you know, I would never be doing this in the first place, but I think like the crispy chicken skin um, is important and it's nice to be reminded about that. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes it's it's not about the freaking puree, man. It's really just about the the techniques that we forget we learn when we first learned how to cook. Mm. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about London because I know that the show was filming there. I don't know, like, could you leave? Like, did you get to go eat anywhere? What were your impressions of London as a food city? Uh, the answer is no, no, and no. <laughs> we're not. When you're filming anywhere, you're not allowed to let that country know that you were there. So most people didn't know I was there at all. And I think even now, for the sake of the show Next Level Chef, they have it like marketed in Las Vegas. Like that's where they say technique. But there's no. There. Yeah. This is this is something I was thinking about because everyone has openly talked about how it's in London. They they and the TV show they're saying like oh welcome to glitzy Las Vegas Nevada where we're cooking <laughs> yes yeah they do but you went to London because Gordon is in London yes his studio is in London everyone knows his studio is in London it's like a weird gray area I think we all know Gordon Ramsay is British I yes think it's okay. I think we're, <laughs> yes he is he is British we were in London um yeah it is not glamorous but you know what is glamorous being alone is glamorous. (laughs) And I was very afraid to be away from 
an entire city. I, I love walking around Brooklyn every single day. I usually clock in like 11,000 steps at least a day outside. Little flex, yeah. <laughs> little, little flex. Um, and we were allowed to go outside zero times while being there unless we are going to sit. And that is how it is for any reality TV show, actually. Wow. I feel like that must be so isolating. There's so many things that I feel like uh, when I was watching the first episode that all the judges are like, wow, we can tell the pressures is really getting to these people. And I'm like, yeah, you made the most stressful kitchen of all time. (laughs) And like, of course, people aren't performing well. Did you like how did you feel being so isolated? Did you do anything to try to like feel connected to yourself? Yeah, I restarted Gilmore Girls, mm. and I I reconnected real fast. Um, With Rory and Lorelai. <laughs> yes, I did. Exactly. We went through that show together. Um, I honestly am grateful I wasn't able to expose myself to anything but my own room and my brain. I'm sure I could have used some steps outside. I was known for pacing around set mm. and, like, staring at my Apple Watch. That is what most of the cast and crew knows me for. Um, So, yeah, sure, I could have used, like, a few walks outside. But I think it is a very liberating experience to just know that every day you wake up, you cook for 45 minutes, you go through the motions of being on a reality TV set, et cetera, et cetera. You don't have your phone on you. And you just have you, your brain, and this hobby that's now being turned into a game. Um, And that's all you have to think about. And I was actually very relieved to be in an environment like that because as much of it as much as that sounds like some sort of intermediate jail uh it's quite liberating liberating to, to be off your phone liberating to be off my phone and liberating to be I say this to a lot of my friends now this is a little personal but it was very liberating to not have any expectations of me as a human being other than being expected to show up to set every day and cook and that was a really interesting exercise as a young adult. You mean like to not be doing laundry and going to the grocery store and all of those things? Like what is it? What is a human being expectation? A human being expectation like for finally for the first time, I don't feel like I owe anyone a phone call. I don't feel like I yeah, I don't I don't need to go to the grocery store because I'm allowed to and motivated to just order online the way they told us to do and all these things that I would once feel are luxuries are now just expected of me to do. Mm. I got that. Like you can't really have FOMO because there's no way that you could be going to hang out with people anyways. So you're just like on your own cooking island. Exactly. Absolutely. I don't know if you ever watched Inside Out, but uh, they, the they, like, Pixar movie? Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, the Pixar movie. I rewatched it recently and I re-fell in love with the idea they portrayed where you have personality islands and you get to access them or you energize each island at different parts of your day. But for that entire time I was filming, I was living on that one cooking island and that was very incredible for my brain. Mm. So do you think you would go back on a cooking competition show? Oh, I really just made it sound like I would, didn't I? Yeah. <laughs> like, Marion's definitely going to go. <laughs> um, oh, man, I just told, I just met up with a few of the contestants from the show, and everyone was like, yeah, Marion's going back. Marion's definitely doing another one. And I said, absolutely not. And then 10 minutes later, 
he talked to me. He uh, Matt is the co-contestant I'm talking about. He was like my dad slash cool uncle slash brother on the show. Um, so as soon as I said, no, I'm definitely not. He spoke to me for 10 minutes. And at the end, someone else asked me. And I was like, yeah, probably. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it really just depends on how I'm feeling the day I'm expected to sign a contract or not. What did he what did he say that made you change your mind? I think it was just the I think he reiterated the possibility like there's so much we don't know about how I could perform next time or how much fun I could have next time. And my hesitation or my reservation about it all is the fact that it might not compare to this time. I might get eliminated on the first episode and I don't want to live to experience that. Yeah. Um, it's, it's kind of like when people say like, oh, well, what if it goes wrong? And then Tumblr says, well, what if it goes right? Like that, That's pretty much the talk he gave me. And I was like, oh, yeah, what if it does go right? Yeah. And also, what if it's like a TV show where you're not like grabbing ingredients off of a moving platform and putting them back on for Gordon Ramsay, but instead you're <laughs> just like cooking in a more normal situation? You know, that'd be cool. That'd be lovely. I, you know, I probably would do it. The, the more I think about it, it's just I can't I can't stop cutting my hair off. I can't stop jumping into random TV cooking shows <laughs> and not knowing what they'll entail until I experience it. On that note, we ask all of our guests on the Taste Podcast, if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, so you have no deadline, or budget, so you have unlimited money to spend on whatever you want, what would that book be? Oh, man. You know, I've been thinking about this since I was on set six months ago. And even to this day, I wake up and try to think about what I would try to give the world in a bound book. I think, you know, I actually I've answered this question in terms of like if I could have my own cooking show or like food oriented TV show, what it would it be? And I think this could be translated to a book as well. So many of my favorite food memories and where I learned about food come from my best friend's mothers, like all of my favorite foods just come from a day I spent with my best friend, like a little play date at their house and their mom whipped up some random dish for us and it made me fall in love with a completely different brand of food that I had never experienced before. So one example of that being when I was seven years old, um, my best friend was Japanese and had just moved from Japan and I went to her house and her mom made takoyaki. And that was my first time having octopus tentacles and this like delicious fried fritter ball and like another time my best friend when I was 13 my mom befriended a South Asian woman and I was best friends with her daughter and we learned how to make dosa and all of these things just taught me so much about food I wish I could collect a recipe book or some sort of documentation of all of my friends moms and their recipes and I know it's so typical to just like like my mom's cooking or like your mom's house or your mom's food like that's that's very prevalent in a lot of like food or restaurant branding these days, I think, or it's just, it's very much an essay that's been like written in a million ways, but I don't know, the food's not getting any less delicious. And I think there's, there's just so much to, to learn from all of these food memories and play dates and a very shared experience of all of these mothers who moved to the U.S. and learned how to cook their culture's food for their now American child. And I think there's just like a plethora of technique there that drives most of my cooking these days. I love that. I think that's such a fun idea for a TV show 
or a book adaptation of the TV yeah. show or both at once. It kind of reminds me of um, Hawa Hassan's book in Bibi's Kitchen. I don't know if you read yeah. that, which is all about um, different grandmothers around West Africa and their recipes. And it's spotlighting like their stories and their cooking. I think that's something that makes me really excited about getting older is this idea that the dishes that I'm cooking now, if I still love them, I'll be so good at them. Like grandma level good, mom level good, just over time and repetition. And I do think there's so much that of that knowledge that could be shared through something like that. Oh, my gosh. That's such a great way to think about aging. (laughs) Aging through the context of food. Wow. I love that. Yeah, I would hope to capture that one day. I I hope so, too. Um, And thank you so much for coming on to talk. This was so much fun. Of course. Thank you for having me. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Eliza Abarbanel. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things happening.